All right, if you take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Luke, we're going to do something different today, but in conjunction with the uh, commissioning service, I want to talk about uh, a, a comment that Jesus made on three different occasions that uh, has been uh, uh, part of the missionary uh, conferences and so forth forever. In Luke chapter 10, for example, and we'll look at three passages today, but Luke chapter 10, he says, uh, Jesus is speaking, he says in verse 2, uh, he said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few, therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now I have been in the church almost all of my life, and I've been to many missionary conferences, uh, both in churches and in Bible colleges and so forth, and this passage and the other two we'll look at is a very common passage uh, that is often read, often preached from at these missionary conferences with the idea of encouraging young people to become missionaries. And uh, this is probably one of the key verses that people often use. The idea seems to be that there, there's a multitude of people waiting for someone to bring them the gospel, and the holdup is there's not enough laborers, there's not enough people going out to uh, take, the, take the gospel to them. But as we look at the context of these today, there's, there, there's more to it than that. And uh, there, I think sometimes these passages are pressed beyond what is actually here. And at the same time, they're vital passages for us to look at. So I'm going to look at these two, three passages with you, see what Jesus has to say about the white harvest that he's talking about. In this Luke chapter 10, we start with verse 1. Now after this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them in pairs ahead of him, to every city and place where he himself was going to come. Now Jesus sends out 70. In chapter 9 he had sent out the disciples themselves, the apostles. He's got 70 more followers he's going to send out uh, on a mission trip. But this is not a passage of scripture that really identifies uh, what we usually call uh, lifetime career missions. This is at best a short-term trip. There's 70 of them going out for a short term for a particular purpose. Each of these passages have different reasons. Jesus says what he says about it, and he's sending them out, and this is not a pattern for modern missionary movement. Uh, you, all you have to do is read the context to see that. If you drop on down to, uh, to verse 4, he says to them, carry no money belt, no bag, no shoes, and greet no one on the way. Now, wouldn't that be a great missionary send-off? Right? I mean... Uh, we say, if we're sending off the Tuckers today, we don't want you to take any clothes with you. No shoes, no suitcase, just go. No money, just go. That's, not, that's hardly the pattern. Right? Matter of fact, uh, I don't know how well you're doing with that, but the Tuckers need people to help them load up their stuff Monday and Tuesday uh, so they can be on their way. So this is a perfect uh, segue into that, that advertisement that uh, if you can help out uh, at least part of the day on one, either one of those days, moving their stuff, into a van so they can take it to Texas, they would be very, very happy. So this is not a uh, pattern for modern missionary movement. Otherwise, they wouldn't be taking anything, not even shoes, which would be a, a real problem. They wouldn't even greet anybody. They wouldn't even talk to anybody on the way until they got to where they were going. So this is a unique situation, but that doesn't mean we're, there's not things that we can, we can glean from this in a wider application. In, in verse 1, as he sends them out in pairs, and so forth. In verse 2 he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore beseech the Lord of harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. And so as he, as he sends them out, he talks about this harvest is plentiful, 
There are people that need to hear the gospel and respond. Now, we don't know where he even came up with these 70 people. Uh, up until now, it seems like he's only had a few followers. But apparently he has uh, these followers too. We don't know what happens to them. We don't know if they were at the cross later on. We don't know if they followed Jesus throughout a lot of his ministry. We don't know if they were in the upper room in Acts chapter 1. Uh, but uh, here they are following him at this point. And uh, we, we find also this particular pattern that Jesus gives here and also this prayer request. So I want you to notice that. He, he says, I want you to pray that the Lord will send out laborers into his harvest because the harvest is plentiful. We don't find that repeated in Acts. As the church goes out to, to uh, spread the gospel throughout the world, nobody ever says this again. Nor in the epistles, which teaches us what the church should be doing and what we should believe and how we should act. There's no re repeating of this particular phrase. And so again, this is a rather unique thing that nevertheless has implications for us. Now this might run contrary to some what some of you might believe, but I think this prayer has been answered. Uh, I don't think this is a prayer that, did, that go, went unanswered. I have a hard time believing that Jesus asked for us to pray for something 2,000 years ago that never got answered. I think it's been answered. At this time, he's sending out 70 people. That's about all he could probably muster at the time. Today, we have tens of millions, maybe even hundreds of millions of disciples, believers throughout all the world in virtually every country telling people about the Lord Jesus Christ. I think the laborers have been sent out. That doesn't mean they're all motivated properly or taught properly or that we don't need more laborers, but I do believe that this prayer has been answered. Even in the book of Acts, we find that the laborers went out, some of them unwillingly, as the Lord sent persecution to Jerusalem. Uh, many of them scattered, and everywhere they went, they took the gospel. And so I believe the laborers have gone out at this time. But the issue, the, the real point of it, if you look at verse 2, is not so much the laborers as it is the harvest. He says the harvest is plentiful, and I'm sending you out to give that truth to them. He, they're going ahead of Jesus physically. Jesus is going to follow them, and they're setting the pattern and, and uh, laying the groundwork for Jesus' coming. Now, if we're going to, again, stay, say this is a, a typical passage for modern missionary work, we have to drop down to uh, later verses, verses 10 to 12. And as we do, there's, there's something I do think we learn from this passage. Not quite exactly, perhaps, a straight giveaway. But verse 10, But whatever city you enter, and they do not receive you, go out into the streets and say, Even the dust of your city, which clings to your feet, we wipe off and protest against you. Yet we be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. And I say to you, it will be more tolerable in the day of Sodom than for that city. As these 70 went out and they were talk, giving the gospel of the kingdom, as they did that, we find that when someone resisted that, they didn't want that, he said, move on. Don't stay and beat their heads with the gospel. Don't try to convince them. Don't try to debate them. If they resist the gospel, move on. Move on, why? Because there's places where the harvest is plentiful. And when we're talking about harvest, we're not talking about sowing. We're talking about reaping. And so there were people ready for the gospel. There were people ready for Jesus. And he says, I don't want you wasting your time working with people that don't want me. I want you to go to those who do want me. And I want you to, to reap that harvest that is there. The harvest is plentiful. Go out and reap that harvest. 
I think there is a principle that we draw from this, and uh, this is uh, some of you might want to debate me this later later on about this, but uh, I think we need to be careful that we're putting our resources into places where people want the gospel. Uh, the, the big push in missionary strategy for the last couple of decades has been the 1040 window, which is mostly made up of Muslim people who have resisted the gospel for uh, centuries and continue to do so. And so we've put a lot of resources, billions of dollars, untold numbers of missionaries and efforts into the 1040 window in a group of people that really do not want the gospel for the most part. Now, I'm not saying either or. I'm not saying we don't reach out to those people. But if we follow this pattern here at all, then we're going to go out to the people that want the gospel. And there are pockets around the world, huge pockets throughout the world that, of people who want the gospel, who are receptive to the word of God. And we think of places in Africa, for example, in China, in the former uh, Russian Soviet countries, and uh, other places along that line that are very receptive to the word of God. And perhaps we ought to consider, as Jesus sent these people out, if we glean something from this in the way of application, is that we need to be putting the bulk of our resources into where people want the gospel. Not exclusively, not saying you should never, do the, never go to people that are resisted, resisting it, but the bulk of our, of our efforts, I think, should be going there. That would be my opinion and my takeaway from this. The hardest areas today to reach people with the gospel are places where the gospel has already been. Ever thought about that? The, the, what some have called the burnover districts, where the gospel has been at one time flourished and has died out and is gone today. For example, Europe. If you go over to Europe, you'll see all sorts of residue of the gospel, but very little true salvation there. You go to Egypt and, nor and northern Africa, where at one time was a hotbed of, of theological uh, theologians, of, the, of one, wonderful churches that is very, very hard to the gospel today, including Egypt. Turkey, that, that's where Paul and Barnabas went to when they were sent out in Acts chapter 13. They went to what we call Turkey today, and the modern missionary movement, or the original missionary movement started there. And yet today, just a handful of believers, Arab countries, and the east coast of the United States. That's called by church historians in America, the burnt over district, because for, for decades there was these revivals and these great movements of God that kept on happening until the people got totally turned off to the gospel, and now today it's the hardest place in the world, in this country, to reach people for Christ. Now, again, I'm don't, don't take what I'm saying wrong. I'm not saying we should not reach out to those places. We should, and we do, but I think the, the bulk of our attention should be on those that want the gospel. The harvest, the, where the harvest is white, is where Jesus sent the first 70 of these missionaries. Go over to John chapter 5, verse 35 now. John 5, 35. Here's the second time that Jesus uses this picture of a white harvest. If the first time in Luke focused on the harvest, this one focuses on the message. The message, the word. In John chapter 4, verse 35, I'll just read that first and we'll back up. 435. Do you not say that there is yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields 
they are white for harvest. So there, once again, he uses this picture of the white harvest. Let's get, a, let's get some background on what's going on here. Back in, uh, earlier in this chapter, we find Jesus at the well with a Samaritan woman. You're familiar with that story, most of you. And he is, he's talking to the, her, and he is preaching to her. He's tell, tell, giving her the gospel. And she is listening, and, and you know the debate there, so we won't go into that. But Jesus is revealing her heart to her. And this catches her attention. In uh, verse 10, for example, it says this, And Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Go down to verse 13. And Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may not be thirsty nor come all this way to draw. And then Jesus goes on to talk to her. Now here's the picture. Jesus uses this metaphor of water. So let, let me kind of maybe nuance it a bit. Salt water. If you're in the ocean and you're on a raft, you know you're not supposed to drink the water, right? The seawater. Why? Because there's salt in the water and you will die. It might solve your thirst problem for a second or two, but then it comes right back because of the salt content. And you will destroy your body. You will die very quickly if you start drinking seawater. Jesus is saying basically to her, you have spent all your life drinking spiritual seawater, salt water. And you've tried this and you've tried that. You've tried all these types of things to satisfy the spiritual longing in your soul. And all it's done is made you more thirsty and destroyed your life. I have come to give you living water, fresh water. What's better after a workout or, or mowing grass or whatever and you're thirsty, you come in and get a drink of ice cold water. Isn't that wonderful? And Jesus is offering to her this living, fresh water that would satisfy the needs of her soul, that would meet the thirst of her heart. And when Jesus is done talking to her, she has accepted that metaphor and, and his word, his gospel. She now realizes that Jesus has something to offer that no one else has ever offered her. She spent her whole life drinking at the wrong well, drinking the seawater of life that never satisfies and Jesus has offered now the living water that does satisfy. And I don't think Jesus necessarily needed to have deep insights into her, even though he did, to know that, because that is the truth about everybody on the planet. Every individual is drinking at the, at the wrong well until they come to Jesus Christ and drink of the living water. We're all doing it. We all did it. We all drank this, this, this water, this life that did, did not satisfy and actually destroyed. And then we found Jesus Christ and the, the living water he has to offer. And so he gives that to this young lady. And uh, she comes to believe in that. And then the story continues on. Uh, let's drop to verse 27, for example. Jesus has been talking to her. And the disciples come up at this point, And they were amazed that he was speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, why do you, what do you seek? Or why do you speak with her. And so as they come to, to Jesus, they're surprised by what's going on here. 
And they're surprised because Jesus is speaking to a woman. You see, the, the rabbinical school at the time would not allow a, a man to speak to a woman in public. Uh, they, uh, they had these traditions, these rituals, these legalistic ideas that if a man spoke to a woman in public, it was wrong. Matter of fact, here's one of their laws. Let no one talk with a woman in the street. No, not with one's own wife. Okay, and then here's another one. Better that the words of the law should be burned than delivered to a woman. Now Jesus defied both of those, didn't he? He spoke to women in public a lot. He taught them the word, uh, at, even sitting at his feet. Some, many of them followed him. So Jesus defied the traditions of, of the people at the time, the rabbinical traditions, and so he's talking to this Samaritan woman. But his disciples are surprised still. That why are you talking to her? You're breaking the rules. Why, why are you bothering with this obviously sinful woman? And everybody knew her. She came to the well by herself for a reason. Usually the women came in a group. She came by herself because none of the other women wanted to associate with her. And so she was not the kind of person most people would want to be with. But Jesus did. In verse 31, meanwhile the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. And he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And so the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did they? Now notice they're, they're concerned about his food. Did Jesus need to eat? Yes, he was a man, and he needed to eat to live. Verse 34, Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus says, I have higher priorities, is to do the will of my Father. Then he goes on in verse 35, do not say there is yet four months, and then comes the harvest. I want you to catch what's going on here, or you'll miss what he's saying. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, they are white for harvest. You know what's happening right now? Jesus looks up, and he turns his disciples around and says, look over there. The whole town is coming out to hear the gospel. The Samaritan woman had gone back to the village and she brought, she told them what Jesus was doing and what Jesus was offering. And the whole city was coming out. And Jesus says, look, the harvest is white. There are people coming to hear the truth of life. There are people coming to hear, to, to receive the water of life. I can eat anytime. I can skip lunch. Well, I can, but I don't have every opportunity like this to reap the harvest that is happening at this time. I think, uh, as, as we can, if we can go on a little further here, looking at verse 36, already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for, etern for, the, for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I say, I sent you to reap for that which you have not labored or others have labored and you have entered into their labor. I think sometimes this particular verse is taken out of context. Folks, the truth is the harvest is not always white. The truth is there are many times and many pockets and many people who have no interest whatsoever in the, in the gospel and in the word that Christ wants to give us. And it doesn't matter, give them. It doesn't matter how many preachers, 
there are or how many missionaries are sent or how much money is poured into it or how many prayers are uttered. People simply do not turn to Christ in some areas. That doesn't mean we quit because as Jesus goes on and says here, there's a time to sow and a time to reap. That's what it says in Ecclesiastes. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He's telling his disciples, look, the prophets for hundreds of years have poured into these people. Now the Samaritans had this hodgepodge religion, a bit of Judaism, a bit of their own ideas. They put it together in their own spiritual stew and they had their own religion. But nevertheless, the, uh, the prophets and others had been ministering to them, preaching the truth for centuries, and they had not responded very much at all to the word. We come to this group here now and what's happening. Having done no work whatsoever, for the, the apostles I'm speaking of, having done no sowing, no cultivating, no work, they're going to get to reap a harvest. And Jesus is saying to them, look, others have gone before you. Others have, have laid the groundwork. They've done all this hard work for centuries, and nothing has come of it. And now today, you get to reap the harvest. You don't need lunch right now. <laughs> you need to reap the harvest because the harvest right now is white. Just think, most of the Jews resisted the gospel against Jesus, when Jesus came. But in Acts chapter 2 and 3, thousands started coming to him. The harvest was white at that time. In, a, in the modern missionary movement, some of the missionaries that we consider great heroes like Adonai and Judson, William Carey, David Livingston, they went into areas and they, they worked for years with no converts. No one came. They planted the seed, they preached the word, and for years no one came. In the, heart, in, in the life of some of them, they did see a marvelous harvest later on. David Livingston, as I understood it, spent his whole life in, in Africa, never saw one convert. Not one. Everybody knows his name. He opened the heart of Africa for the gospel. And so he laid the foundation. Who has reaped the harvest? Those that came later. And Jesus is saying, look, all this has happened here. All these people are coming. The, white, the harvest is white. Let's, let's reap the harvest as they come. Now I want to say one more thing on this while we're here. I want you to note an interesting thing in chapter 4. These people are going to come to the Lord in droves. But I want you to know in chapter 4, not one mention of a miracle is there. Not one sign, not one wonder, not, not, not one person healed, not one person raised from the dead, not one demon cast out. And that's partly because uh, no one really comes to the Lord because of the signs and wonders. It gets people's attention sometimes, but people don't come. I, I would say if you're a resisting Christ, uh, person today, you are resisting the gospel, that if the Lord Jesus himself showed up in your living room this afternoon and did a wonderful miracle right in your, in your face, you could still resist him. Because people don't come to Christ because of miracles. They come to Christ because of the Ministry of the Word. I want to show you that right here. Go down to verse 41. It says this, Many more believe... Well, let me back up. Verse 39. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I've done. 
And when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. In two days, as Jesus preaches the word, no miracles, no signs, he just preached the word. And they came away saying something the Jews never came away saying. Matter of fact, only John uses this phrase in all the, all the New Testament. He does it twice, once in 1 John 4, uh, 14 and here, that he is the savior of the world. At this time, at the time John wrote this gospel, the emperors of Rome were considered the saviors of the world. That was one of their titles. They considered themselves the saviors because they sent their armies out and conquered everybody and then gave them peace, <laughs> their laws, their prosperity, their roads, and they considered themselves the savior of the world as a result. And they were termed, that was their title. And when John wrote these words, it was a direct challenge to the emperor of Rome. He said the emperor might be the savior of the world economically, but the savior of the world, the true savior, is Jesus Christ. He's the Lord. He's the one to worship. And the Samaritans got it in two days, and they came to the Lord. What a wonderful thing. And so the first time we see this phrase, the, the, of the white harvest, we're looking at a harvest and those involved. Secondly, we're looking at the message, the word, the gospel. I want you to go very briefly over to Matthew now, chapter 9, and look at the final time that this phrase is used. Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. And let me suggest to you there's another reason Jesus uses it this, this time. The first time to talk about the harvest the second time to talk about the, the message, the third time to talk about the compassion. And I want you to catch this. This is, a th this is so vital. He says in verse 35 of Matthew 9, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now that's a summary verse for the chapter. If you glance back over the verses prior to this, you find that Jesus is, is everywhere. He's healing people, casting out demons, raising the dead. And this verse summarizes all that Jesus has been doing so far. But then after having done all of that, verse 36, Jesus looks up. And he looks around him at the people that are there. Many of them coming for physical healings or whatever reason, and he looks at them, and here's what he says, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. I find this extremely instructive for us today. Look at, what did he see? He saw people that were distressed, dispirited, and confused. Does that not identify our age? We are distressed, depressed, confused, dispirited. Suicides are out the, at the highest level ever in this country. Depression is the highest it's ever been. 
the medicines for depressions and the, and the psychological, uh, going to psychologists, whatever, for depression is out, out of this world. People are discouraged. People, people are confused. Who do we believe anymore? Isn't that a question on everybody's mind as we watch the, the news, the media, the politicians? Who do we believe anymore? Who's our shepherd? Who's guiding us? And so Jesus looks out and that's what he sees. Now he had a group of people that resisted him. He had a group of people that would ultimately crucify him. And yet he looks at them and it says here that he has compassion on them. His heart goes out to them. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. As Jesus looked at these very needy people, I want you to know where his heart was. He loved them. He had compassion for them. There's a takeaway for us right now. We live in a very similar age, as I just mentioned. And it's very easy for us as Christians to, to act in kind with people who are resisting the gospel and resisting us. We, we, get, we can get in a political win situation. We've got we've to win the argument. We've we got to convince everybody that we're right. And we realize that we, have, we have to fight things that are evil. We're not talking about that. But what we are saying is this. As you look out at the world around people, at people that don't agree with you, people that are going the wrong direction, do you realize that they're discouraged, depressed, dispirited, and totally confused? What do they need? Do they need to be convinced of our arguments? Do we need to, to beat them down in, in, on social media and in, in person? Or should we be behaving a little differently than the world and look at people with compassion, that they have a, a great need for Jesus Christ, who is our shepherd? I think there's a great takeaway from that. You know, people are not going to uh, listen much to us if they don't think we care for them. Don't be like the, uh, the ruler of Prussia in the 18th century, a guy named Frederick William I. He desperately wanted his people to love him, but he was a mean-spirited, grouchy old man. And so he still wanted to be loved. So he walked the streets of, of, the, of the cities and griped at people and said bad things to the people. If they got in his way, he hit them with his walking stick. One day a poor peasant couldn't get out of his way in time and tried to escape in a door of, of a doorway and uh, couldn't get in because it was locked. And uh, Frederick said, uh, what are you doing? I'm trying to go in this house, he said. Frederick said, is that your house? He said, no. Then why are you going in there? I'm trying to get away from you. Why? Because I fear you. And Frederick said this. He says, you're not supposed to fear me. You're supposed to love me, you scum. Huh? I think it's kind of funny. You know, who's going to love a person like that? You know, are we going to win people with our arguments or are we going to win them with the love of Christ? If we're following the pattern of Christ, he recognized the white harvest and calling people to himself, but he showed them his love, his compassion. He cared for the souls of people who didn't care for him. And so we have these three passages about the white harvest. The first is focused on those who are ready for harvest. The second on the gospel and the message. And the third on the compassion that we need to have for those 
that are lost. And so as we uh, close down our time together today, as we think about sending the Tuckers to another location to proclaim the gospel and the word, may these things be on our hearts and minds. Father, we thank you now for your word. May we, Father, realize there are many people who desire and need to know Christ. Their hearts are ready. They need the truth. May we give them that truth. May we give them the gospel uh, of, of the message you've given us to give. And Lord, may we do it with hearts of love and compassion. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.